You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Nicole, a member of the committee staff. Thanks for tuning in to NSLT. This week we'll be hearing the live audio from a recent committee breakfast event with Andrea Gacki, who's the director of OFAC, the Office of Foreign Assets Control, at the Department of the Treasury. You can find out more about the committee online at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity and listen to Director Gacki's full speech, including the audience Q&A, where we'll be posting it on that website. Uh, It's my real pleasure to introduce to you all Andrea Gacki, who is the director of OFAC, uh, the Office of Foreign Assets Control at the Treasury Department. Uh, This is not a topic that this group talks about very frequently, economic sanctions or OFAC, But I think this is an agency that really plays a critical role in the topics we do talk about, which are law and national security. OFAC is a small agency. They're an incredibly busy agency. Um, And let me say, explain a little bit why. So first, the sanctions that our OFAC administers really do feature prominently in almost every U.S. national security emergency that we face today. You think about counterterrorism and counterproliferation, You think about the responses to foreign policy crises in Venezuela, Iran, and elsewhere. Economic sanctions are kind of the favored tool of the U.S. government, which means work for OFAC. Second, uh, the sanctions have become more complicated over the past decade. Uh, Policymakers, and I know this from my own experience, want sanctions tools that are increasingly targeted at the bad actors without having any effects on the quote good guys, the civilians, or U.S. industry. It's basically an impossible task, but it's one that OFAC is assigned to administer, which means they're busy. And then third, the long arm of sanctions has expanded over the past decade. So uh, sanctions have been enforced aggressively against companies overseas, which again means more work for Andrea's office. Um, So OFAC, in my view, has one of the more difficult missions in Washington, but one of the more interesting missions in Washington. And this is an agency that is technically competent, they work very hard, uh, and they are willing to engage to the extent they can. And I really think Andrea personifies all those qualities. Uh, She's someone I've known for over 10 years in government. Uh, We work together on many different issues in government, uh, from her time at the Justice Department to her many years at OFAC. Uh, Sometimes Andrea jokes that she's held almost every position at OFAC at one time or another. Um, And I think this is not really far from the truth. Uh, So she's a lawyer, uh, and she began her career, as I mentioned, at the Justice Department, at the Federal Programs Branch, uh, where she defended OFAC against some of the more difficult lawsuits that they've ever faced. Andrea joined OFAC in 2008 uh, as a policy advisor, a senior policy advisor, and since then she's served as assistant director for licensing, uh, associate director for compliance and enforcement, the deputy director, and uh, eventually this last in 2018 became the director of OFAC. So she has really knows this agency well and she has worked her way to the top. Uh, Andrea is smart, uh, she's tough, uh, but she's very reasonable, uh, and she's humble and a great leader. Uh, she's really the type of public servant who, in my view, we're really fortunate to have in the senior levels of our government. And Andrea is going to talk today about some very important steps that OFAC has taken recently 
under Andrea's watch to be clearer about some of its compliance and other priorities. These are the types of good government initiatives that sometimes go unnoticed or unappreciated in Washington and elsewhere, but I can tell you they're very meaningful to those who are trying to comply with very complex rules and policies. Uh, so without further ado, let me uh, ask Andrea to come up. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for having me here. I just want to thank Brian for that exceptionally kind introduction. Um, I do remember um, back in the day when I was reviewing um, OFAC designation packages or maybe it was state designation packages um, in my office at the Justice Department, and Brian was the state L lawyer at the time. And then I saw Brian go to this job and this job and this job, and I just went to OFAC and worked at OFAC for, for until now, you know, until, until I'm in this position. Um, and as, but um, thank you all for gathering. I'm going to talk, as Brian noted, I'm going to talk this morning um, a bit about a recent initiative that we've undertaken to put out a framework of compliance commitments. Um, so let me let me talk a little bit about give a little. Talk, I'm going to be focusing on our our civil enforcement process. So a lot of times when OFAC is in the news, and OFAC is in the news whether you know it or not on a lot of different on a lot of different topics. When sanctions on PDVSA are imposed, that's OFAC. When OFAC make sure that Sitco can keep operating notwithstanding the sanctions on PDVSA, that's OFAC. When sanctions just yesterday are imposed on a network of the Quds Force in Iraq, that's OFAC. Um, so um, with all that um, in mind, and I see several OFACers over here, in fact, so I mean, so they know, you know this as they, as they um, work on this um, every day. So, um, but let me, uh, you know, let me talk a little bit about the civil enforcement process. Um, you know, the um, enforcement is and has always been a top priority for um, OFAC. But there was a period last year, at about this time, when there was a lot of commentary in the press that there weren't too many civil enforcement actions, there weren't any civil enforcement actions coming out of OFAC. There was a lull in the pace of our published public actions. And I wanted to talk about that a little bit before I get to the next topic. A lot of this, a lot of people saw this as indicia of, of shifting priorities or resource constraints. And I think that our recent pace of activity has shown that that could not have been further from the truth. As folks with experience in this area can tell you, we take our civil enforcement actions very seriously and we treat every matter with the care and due diligence that it deserves. This can sometimes mean that the cases we bring to conclusion may not advance as quickly as we'd like, or it may take months or years to finalize these matters and bring them to conclusion. As we approach every civil enforcement action, we want to get it right so we don't rush the cases and we dedicate the time and attention that it needs. And sometimes the question, the action, the the potential violations can be so significant in scope or span multiple um, years that it requires multiple data requests, a careful review of all associated documents, and none of that is a quick or easy process. So as you've seen as in recent months, however, we brought a number of these cases that had been, that had been pending, that had been, we've been working on for many years across administrations to conclusion. 
For example, in April, we brought to conclusion two large interagency settlement agreements with Standard Chartered Bank and the Unicredit Book Group banks. Both of these cases covered activity that occurred over a nearly five-year period from 2007 to 2011 for Unicredit and from 2009 through 2014 for Standard Chartered Bank. The matters were carefully and deliberately evaluated and we brought them to, again, to conclusion when we were ready. But one interesting element in these cases that I'd like to draw your attention to is that OFAC deemed satisfied the settlement amounts, our settlement amounts for payments made that the, those banks made to other federal agencies for penalties that arose out of the same patterns of, patterns of conduct over the same period of time. Previously, in other large interagency settlement actions, OFAC had deemed satisfied another agency's penalty to satisfy the OFAC penalties regardless of the conduct being charged by the other agency. So going forward, this was a small step, but one that is great to highlight for the bar, which is our very reasonable approach to how we are going to assess penalties in interagency cases going forward. In order to balance OFAC's desire to avoid the unnecessary piling on with the strategic use of our, of our enforcement authorities, the only payments of penalties being charged by another federal agency that OFAC will now deem to satisfy OFAC's penalties will be with those that relate to the same pattern of conduct for the same period of time that gave rise to the OFAC penalties. Another common element of the Unicredit and the Standard Chartered Bank settlements was that detailed compliance commitments accompanied the settlements. So the compliance commitments are designed to reinforce the sanctions compliance programs already in place of those institutions. Each of the banks and their settlement agreements agreed to ensure that it has a management team in place that is committed to a culture of compliance, conducts regular risk assessments, ensures that its internal controls appropriately mitigate its sanctions-related risks, conducts regulated regular audits, and provides ongoing sanctions compliance training throughout the organization. So we believe it's vitally important to, to, uh, to highlight the corrective actions that these institutions will take to address sanctions compliance issues. At the same time, we highlight the violations of our sanctions and the compliance breakdowns that allowed them to occur. To that end, in April 2019, OFAC published a, doc, a document that outlines the essential components of an effective sanctions compliance program. I won't repeat everything in it, and indeed I've hit on many of the main um, elements already as they were features of the settlement agreements in the Unicredit and the Standard Charter Bank cases. But this guidance and this document is intended to be useful to the industry as a whole and to help those working in compliance to do their jobs more effectively and to implement the appropriate compliance measures for your financial institution or your company. So I know that folks here will think, well, these compliance, this framework, this is well known to financial institutions. You know, they, they're, they're part of a regulated industry. OFAC is not a regulator. OFAC has, wears enforcement hats, it wears regulatory hats, it wears a law enforcement hat, it wears, you know, it, it works in the intel space, but it's none of those things. So why would OFAC purport to put out a framework um, that, that would be part, that, a, that, a, that, a, that, in it, that another government agency like the OCC would more appropriately you know, work with a financial institution? And in part, that is because to step back, you have to realize that OFAC prohibitions don't apply to all US persons. 
in any instant, any person, be it an individual, a company, a financial institution operating around the world that touches the United States, that has some nexus to the United States. And because of that, there are many industries out there that do not have regulators, that, don't, that, that do run into risky situations, that don't necessarily know what the pillars of compliance that are very familiar to many of you in this room may look like when it comes to the sanctions space. You will notice, and this should be no surprise to you, that OFAC's guidance and framework rely on familiar concepts. That was very deliberate. We wanted to build upon the existing compliance infrastructure and deliberately incorporate anti-money laundering compliance concepts into our framework. And our objective was that it would apply universally, not only to US and foreign national institutions, but also to companies out operating outside regulated industries. Based on the initial feedback that we've received thus far, the guidance has been well received across all quarters. So to note, you know, our sanctions apply not only to financial institutions, so I wanted to highlight a couple of other big cases we brought to conclusion in recent months that focus on non-financial institutions. One, for example, I think it was last month, OFAC announced that Midship Group LLC, which is a US shipping and logistics company headquartered in New York, settled its potential civil li liability for violations of the weapons of mass destruction proliferator sanctions regulations. Midship had prompt processed electronic trans funds transferred that pertained to payments associated with the blocked Islamic Republic of Iran shipping line vessels that were identified on OFAC's list of specially designated nationals and blocked persons. Due to the nature of the conducted issue, including a pattern or practice of conduct that the company was on prior notice to sanctions requirements, Senior management's involvement in the conducted issue, harm to OFAC sanctions program objectives, midship sophistication, and midship sophistication, OFAC determined that the apparent violations were egregious. <clears throat> Similarly, earlier this spring, OFAC announced a $1.8 million settlement with Stanley Black & Decker and its Chinese foreign subsidiary for egregious conduct that resulted in apparent violations of the Iranian transactions and sanctions regulations. Because during a period of 18 months, Stanley Black & Decker's subsidiary engaged in non-routine business practices, including creating fictitious bills of lading and instructing customers not to use the word Iran in documents to conceal and facilitate its shipments of power tools and spare parts to Iran. Earlier this year as well, in a very interesting case, um, OFAC um, announced a settlement with the Cole Morgan Corporation which settled its potential liability for six apparent violations of the Iranian transactions and sanctions regulations, which had been caused by its Turkish affiliate. This case was settled for a relatively low dollar amount, but it demonstrates OFAC's willingness to recognize the pre meaningful pre-acquisition compliance measures that Cole Morgan took to integrate its Turkish subsidiary into its company and the fact that Cole Morgan engaged in continued and documented commitment to sanctions compliance post-acquisition as evidenced by various policies and trainings. However, Cole Morgan's subsidiary in Turkey warranted a clear and unequivocal response from OFAC. So in the Cole Morgan case, at the same time we announced the settlement with Cole Morgan, the US company, we actually sanctioned the managing director of the Turkish subsidiary as a foreign sanctions evader, in part because he directed staff to violate OFAC sanctions and to cover it up from the U.S. parents. 
in this, OFAC showed its willingness to use creatively all the tools at our disposal to pursue individuals and entities who willfully violate our sanctions. These cases and many others that we've announced in recent months illustrate the benefits that companies operating in fields with sanctions exposure can realize by implementing risk-based compliance measures, especially when engaging in transactions involving high-risk exposure to jurisdictions or persons implicated by U.S. sanctions. And I, I think that our compliance framework shows the types of objectives, the types of things that we are looking for and that companies can use to their benefit when they operate in a, particular, um, in a particularly risky space. So one of the things that I've set out to do as OFAC director is engage in, and I've known this, and I've mentioned this in a number of different settings now, is engage in something of a compliance listening tour. So on the margins of a speaking event I did on the West Coast, for example, I went out and met with a number of fintech establishments, companies that are actually new to me, not as a user, but as in the sanctions space, as to how do our sanctions compliance obligations apply to an electronic processing payments platform, where the technology is new, and the company is also very new, so it's not in a regulated, uh, regulated space. But also I met with more traditional financial institutions on the margins of a speaking engagement in New York City a few weeks ago. And in this, it, I just gathered a tremendous amount of information that actually helps OFAC do its job better, but also assess what are the capabilities, what are the shortcomings of the work we do. And that's a commitment that I think I've tried to bring to OFAC since being there, but especially as director, that we are out, we are on a mission not just to effectively implement sanctions on behalf of the U.S. government, um, economic sanctions, but also to improve the way we do it. And we do that by engaging and by listening. And to that end, honestly, I, I, I make the offer here. If you, for example, have any companies or financial institutions that you would be interested in, that you think would be interested in talking to me, I encourage you to reach out to us. I'd be happy to give you that information as we develop um, future plans to do this type of outreach. Well, let me pause there. I think there's a lot to talk about when it comes to OFAC, and I've, I've talked a lot this morning. Um, so I'm happy to take questions. Thanks. Thanks, Andrea. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security. You can find out more about us online at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. You can also drop us a note at NationalSecurity at AmericanBar.org or on our Twitter at ABANatSec. We welcome your feedback. You can also subscribe to get episodes of this podcast delivered to you weekly. Thank you for listening, and see you next time. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.